Well, welcome back to Evil Crimes, you guys. Yes, welcome back to another week of True Crimes. I hope that y'all are enjoying listening to these episodes as much as we are enjoying making them. We sure hope so. And without all of you, we do not have a podcast, so like and share us on all your social media platforms. Absolutely. And make sure to comment or drop us a question for further information on what's going on in our evil crimes world. Exactly. So as some of you are probably confused about the title of this episode, you soon will find out everything you didn't want to know about this case. Exactly, Dylan. This was a very interesting case to research, and we always love covering cases outside the U.S. It's our favorite. Yep. But what do you say we just dive right in? Let's do it. Sounds like a great idea. I'm Christopher Wilkes. I'm Dylan Malone, and this is... Evil Crimes. July 24th in Stanford, Lincolnshire. This is the day John George Hay was born to his parents, Emily and John Robert Hay. He is the only child of his parents. His father was a Coyer foreman, which a Coyer is a coal mine, if you didn't know. Mm-hmm. We have learned that his parents were extremely strict and domineering. Does that sound a little familiar? Just a little, Dylan. Just a tad. <laughs> um, and it seems like every case we have with the killer, the parents are always overbearing. Yeah. So they were also, you guessed it, ultra-religious. Seems like it's a That's common theme. <laughs> um, they were actually part of a religious uh, group called the Plymouth Brethren. Yeah, so the Plymouth Brethren are a conservative, conservative evangelical Christian movement whose history can be traced to Dublin, Ireland in the late 1820s. Yeah, now this was a very strict Christian group. And I would dare to say similar to Jehovah Witness, as they did not celebrate Christmas. I mean, I can't imagine not celebrating Christmas. Like Dylan, I can't lie, it may force me to kill someone. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so, with this information, we can pretty much draw a picture in our heads of how his childhood was. Right. And so he definitely was sheltered from the outside world, which would cause me feel like anyone to start wondering what was out there. Yeah, so because he had a wondering eyes to the rest of the world, he actually left home in 1934, we learned. Mm-hmm. And soon after he left home, on July 6, 1934, he gets married to 23-year-old Beatrice Hammer. Well, that must have been a quick engagement. Mm-hmm. Pretty quick, <laughs> have to say so. Uh, we also learned that he had a hard time working for other people. Yeah, he definitely couldn't hold down a job, always picking fights with bosses, and pretty much, as we all know, claiming uh, he was always right. Mm -hmm. Eventually realizing he needed to work on his own, he started to sell used cars. Now that sounds reputable. Mm, Does it, Christopher? (laughs) I mean, if you say selling cars that don't belong to you reputable, then yeah. Oh yeah, kind of forgot about that part. (laughs) Yeah, so he forges financial documents and starts selling stolen cars. Yeah, unfortunately, it did not take long for police to pick up on this, and he was arrested. So, in November of 34, John serves 15 months in jail. Yeah, and while he's in jail, Beatrice actually gives birth to a baby girl. 
she immediately puts the girl up for adoption and actually divorces George. Ouch. Um, and to put further salt in those wounds, his parents at this point disown him and want nothing to do with him. Yeah, and in our research, I mean, you hear nothing about his parents after this. So, I mean, they literally cut all ties uh, with him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Carthy was probably not what she was looking for. <laughs> I would say probably not. So, yeah, after spending 15 months in jail, he actually is released. Exactly. And upon his release, um, him and a buddy started a dry cleaning business. Yeah. Now, from all accounts, this business actually became pretty successful. Well, unfortunately, that luck would run out when his business partner is killed in a fatal car accident. Yeah. And because after the after this, the business soon collapsed. Mm-hmm. We would assume that the partner was the brains behind the operation, so when he was gone, I'm sure John could not handle managing it without some other direction. Yeah, now, George then moved to London in 1936. He became a chauffeur to William McSwain, a wealthy owner of amusement arcades. And thereafter, George pretended to be a solicitor named William Cato Adamson with offices in London. Yeah, now he sold fraudulent stock shares from the estates of his deceased clients. And his scam was uncovered by someone who noticed that he had a lot of misspellings in his letterheads, which wasn't common for educated solicitors. Now, George received a four-year prison sentence for fraud. He was released just after the start of the Second World War. Now, Christopher, you would think he would turn to a reputable job at this point. Yeah, I mean, but of course he goes right back to fraud and was, and was definitely sentenced to several further terms of imprisonment. Yes, and this is where the story takes an evil crimes twist. Yes, Dylan. So, I mean, yeah, right now he's just a petty thief, you mm-hmm. know, uh, stealing cars and, you know, stealing from deceased clients, all that. But nothing like this. So, this is where George finally re- realizes... His repeated arrests were because he left the victims alive to report the crimes. I mean, a normal person would just, you know, get a regular job. But not this guy. Yeah, no, 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 not this guy. Uh, We would have no interest in him at this point if he was just becoming a regular (laughs) guy. That is very true. So, yeah, so uh, he he actually becomes intrigued by the crimes of a French murderer called George Alexander Surratt. He does. In Surratt in 1925 had disposed of his victims' bodies via sulfuric acid. So if you're kind of getting the drift of the title, yeah, mm-hmm. this is where you could start learning. Right. So while in prison, George devised a method of disposing of a murder victim by using sulfuric acid. Yeah, and while reading this, I was very confused. So I was Why? like, um, how is he learning how to do this in jail? Like, they're giving him things to, <laughs> to, to figure out well, how... Well, that's a good question. Yeah. So, what does he do in jail? Exactly. Why are you giving an inmate sulfuric <laughs> acid? Yeah. And bodies. <laughs> but, supposedly, he experimented with field mice and found that it only took 30 minutes for the bodies to just dissolve. That is just weird. Yeah. But I'm glad he felt, you know, found a way to do that. Exactly. Okay, so but for, uh, before we go any further, we want to take a second yes. and uh, play a clip that we found. Exactly. And it's from a documentary, correct? <clears throat> yeah, it's from a documentary that we actually watched on this case of George. And it's pretty much just kind of a couple of different... Uh, um, just some viewpoints. Yeah, some viewpoints of, of what people thought of him at the time. Yes. So here we go. John George Haig was the serial killer from Middle England who killed the middle class. He had no compunction and no conscience whatsoever 
about killing people to obtain his ends. The sludge at the bottom of the barrels in which he's dissolved these poor people is poured down the drains. You know, he's literally obliterating an entire family. I was just a young boy in the late 1940s, but I can remember the name John George Haig as if it were yesterday. The newspaper headlines were sensationalist, from vampire horror to modern-day Dracula. But the one that was to stick was the acid bath murderer. So was John George Haig a callous fraudster or a killer out for blood? Yeah, so this was actually a pretty uh, interesting documentary to watch. Uh, if you do have time, you can watch this whole documentary, and we'll have the link in our uh, on our Facebook and things like that. Yeah, so you can watch that. But uh, on uh, to the story, Dylan. Why don't you tell us a little bit more of what's going on here? So George is freed from prison in 1943, and he becomes an accountant with an engineering firm. Yeah, soon after, by chance, he bumps into his former employee, uh, McSwain, in a pub in Kensington. If you remember, he worked for uh, McSwain, mm -hmm. who had the amusement arcades. McSwain introduced George to his parents, Donald and Amy. They worked for, or he worked for them by collecting rent on their London properties. George then became extremely envious of their lifestyle, which I mean, I understand they're, they're extremely wealthy. Right. And so George isn't. George isn't, and obviously, you know, his upbringing, you know, he probably wasn't allowed to, uh, to, to see that kind mm -hmm. of lifestyle. So, well, what happens next? So on September 6, nineteen forty-four, McSwain disappeared. So where could he have gone? Well, <clears throat> see, George later admitted when he was actually caught for all this stuff we're about to tell you that he actually hit him over the head after luring him into a basement in London. Mm. Yeah, uh, it gets even weirder. What happened? So he put McSwain's body into a 40-gallon drum of sulfuric acid. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. And then two days later, he returned to find that the body was completely become, it had completely become sludge. And what does he do? He pours it down a manhole. Of course. I mean, mm. that's what I'd do, right? I'd, I'd do the same thing. So he told McSwain's parents, though... That his son, or that their son, had gone into hiding in Scotland, so he would not be called for military service. Okay, kind of clever. -ish. Yeah, they, yeah. So George then took over McSwain's house, and he began collecting the rents for his parents. Uh, well, Donald and Amy at this point begin becoming a little bit curious um, as to why their son had not returned because the war was coming to an end. Yeah, I mean, what did he think was going to happen like, just, when the war ended? It wasn't just going to go on forever. No, he so. just liked Scotland that, moment, that much. Yes, he stayed he there. He stayed there. <laughs> yeah, so actually it all comes uh, uh, to a, a halt actually on July 2nd, 1945, when he starts to realize, yeah, the gig is up. They're going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So he lured Donald and Amy by telling them that their son was back from Scotland for a surprise visit. He murdered them in his basement with blows to the head and disposed of them. Yeah, and then uh, George stole William McSwain's pension checks and he sold all of their properties. He wound up stealing about 8,000 euros, which we can say roughly equates to about $112,000. Yeah, so, and you have to remember, like, back then, I mean, this is 1945, like, it, it would be really hard, obviously, to sell people's properties and things like that, but... Back then, I mean, forging, you know, yeah. signature documents was pretty easy to I would say, yeah. do. And so, yeah, so it was... Obviously. Obviously. I mean, we see it in all of our old cases that just 
they people just, just sign things up yeah, and themselves. Like, oh, okay. So yeah, he then moved into the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. Now, George at this point was a gambler and was starting to run out of money by the summer of 1947. Mm-hmm. Well, to solve his financial troubles, he, of course, had to find another couple to murder and rob. Yeah, so this brings us to Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife, Rose, whom he murdered after feigning interest in a house they were selling. Mm -hmm. So he initially was invited to the Henderson's flat by Rose to play piano for a housewarming party. And while at the flat, George stole Henderson's revolver, planning to use it in his next crime. Yeah, so he then decided to rent a small workshop in Sussex, where he stole, where he stored all of his barrel drums and acid. Mm-hmm. So on February twelfth, nineteen forty-eight, he took Henderson to this workshop on the pretext of showing him an invention. Yes, yeah. he invents stuff now. Uh, he, he's all a jack of all trades. It right. sounds like. Yeah. So when when Henderson did arrive, George took out the revolver that he'd stole and shot Henderson in the head. He then lured Mrs. Henderson to the workshop, claiming that her husband had fallen ill. Well, he kills her too. Of course he does. Yes. After disposing of their bodies in the oil drums filled with acid, he actually forged a letter from them and sold all their properties just... Just like the poor <laughs> Mrs. Before, yep. Except he did not sell or give away their dog and motor car. Oh, no, no, no. Right. no. He wanted something. Yeah, so he actually kept those for himself. Yes. So this brings us to George's <laughs> next and last victim, Olive Duran Deacon. She was 69 and the wealthy widow of solicitor John Duran Deacon and a fellow resident at the Onslow Court Hotel. Yeah, now George by then was calling himself an engineer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, and Olive mentioned an idea she had uh, to him about uh, creating an artificial fingernail. Mm-hmm. So George invites her to go down to his workshop on February 18th, 1949. And then once inside, he shot her in the back of the head, at uh, the neck, excuse me, with the same revolver he had stolen from Henderson. Yeah, he then stripped her of her valuables, including a Persian lamb coat. And put her into the acid bath. Yep, that's what he does. I'm sure she uh, she didn't see that coming. No. And then two days later, Olive's friend Constance Lane reported her missing. Yeah, now detectives did, they soon caught on to George's record of theft and fraud. I'm not exactly sure. He didn't really tell us like how they came, really came to find it, him. At this point, they're, they're catching on. They're catching on, yeah. So they actually decide to search his workshop. That's a good idea. Might be a good mm-hmm. idea. Well, in the <clears throat> workshop, the police found George's attache case pertaining a dry cleaner's receipt for Olive's coat. They also find papers pertaining to the Hendersons and the McSwains. Yeah, but I mean, if, if that wasn't enough. Right. <laughs> the investigation of the workshop by pathologist Keith Simpson actually revealed 28 pounds of human body fat. Good lord. Yeah. Not just that. Mm-hmm. Part of a foot human gallstones, and part of a denture that was later identified as Olive's by her dentist. That's crazy. Oh, Yeah. So George asked the detective, Albert Webb, during questioning, tell me frankly, what are the chances of someone being released from Broadmoor, which was a high-security psychiatric hospital back then? Yeah, now the the detective said he could not discuss that sort of thing. So George replied, well, 
If I told you the truth, you would not believe me. It sounds too fantastic to believe. This is a pretty crazy story, <laughs> so you can see why he would think that. Yes. Um, but George then confessed to the killings as well as three other people. Uh, so a young man named Max, a girl from Eastbourne, and a woman from Hammersmith. Yeah, they find him guilty, obviously. And he actually is executed by hanging on the 10th of August, 1949. Mm. We actually found it pretty interesting that uh, that George actually wanted to do a trial run of his hanging uh, just so that he could make sure everything was going to go smoothly. Yeah, of course, the, the courts and you know everyone at the prison was like, uh, like we don't do that. No, we're not doing that. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it does not make sense. <laughs> Believe me, it will work. <laughs> right. We've done yes. this before. Trust us. Yes. Another thing is, it's like, well, what you have to realize that at this point, you know, in history, you, there was no such thing as a serial killer. No, they hadn't coined that phrase yet. Yeah. So they didn't actually, weirdly enough, I don't think that they actually believed that anyone would just kill to kill. Right. You know? Then, right. And to do it in such an orchestrated fashion. Right. So it wasn't until later on, you know, in, in it the was, century. I want to say around the 60s. Yeah. It's crazy to think. Like, it, it was the 60s before we ever said serial killer. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, obviously, George was... 100% serial killer. I mean, yeah, know. I mean, he he fit that MO pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty spot much. on. Yeah, so I mean, and also, I mean, it does beg the question, you know, nature versus nurture. I think that's one of the things that you're always asked, you know, especially when, when reading and listening and watching these documentaries on these different killers, is was it the way that they grew up? And it is weirdly enough, like, as we've done research on all these cases. You know, a lot of them do have a, a lot of the same background when it comes yeah. to their families and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. they, so, and they all have like the weird, kind of the weird hobbies as kids, like right. like Ed, like killing cats and dismembering Barbie dolls and stuff. And, right, or George, Charles Albright, who, you know, loved taxidermy and eyeballs right. and, and all that stuff. So, I mean, it, it does beg the question to say, like, if he was raised differently... It would, could have changed things. Would it have changed things? So our question to y'all out there is, what do y'all think? Do y'all think that it is a nature versus nurture? Do you think that people are just born serial killers? killers? Yeah. I mean, I think my my thought in it is that I think you're innately born with it, but I think you can overcome it, yeah. maybe. Through. I think because the way that they're brought up, in my mind, that triggers that psychological, like... Absolutely. Because, I mean, they even say, even, like, with, with psychopaths or, you know things like that that everything comes like in the 20s mm -hmm. you know when you when you start in that age group you start to develop your brain a little bit more <clears throat> yeah but guys yeah so please drop us a comment on the itunes uh podcast or in our soundcloud or wherever you listen to us yes. let us know what you think about serial killers and exactly how and, it all kind of begins and yeah and, and we're also we're always looking for new uh new episodes and and, and new cases to investigate so if there's something you want to listen to you want to hear about let us know let us know <laughs> but until our next episode yes i'm christopher wilkes i'm dylan malone and this is evil crimes, evil crimes.